Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Welcome to our First Fridays for May 2023. We have a lot of questions today. So we're going to do a quick introduction, and then we're going to get right down to business. First, thank you very much for joining us today for our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in for May 2023. Today is Cinco de Mayo. Yesterday was my birthday and Star Wars Day, I think. May the fourth be with you. I hope everybody has a great evening tonight celebrating Cinco de Mayo. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've represented HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona for over 26 years, and my firm currently represents over a thousand community associations, planned communities, and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my board, and I have for many years. Welcome to our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in. First Fridays are a great time to get your questions answered um, on HOA and condo law in Arizona at no charge. Here's how First Fridays is going to work today. If you haven't done so already, please submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then I'll answer all questions between now and 10 a.m. We answer the questions in the order that they come in. So if you're submitting it now, the questions will be added later in the presentation. I can't believe it, but we already have 57 questions today. So we have a lot on our plates. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large volume of questions that we receive, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. If you plan on submitting a question live during the session, please be sure to include your name and your HOA or condominium association's name and what your current role is in the association when you submit your question. Thank you for understanding. I just want to just give a quick little update on the Arizona legislature. We're going to be talking more about this at our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy. On the third Tuesday of each month, we have our Neighborhood Services HOA Academy. It's going to be May 16th. I'm sorry, so it's going to be the second, right? The second Tuesday, I guess. It's third. Okay, it's the third Tuesday. I'm so happy to have Morgan right here in my office helping me on some of these dates. We're going to be talking more about this at our Neighborhood Services HOA Academy that we are having on May 16th. But There have been four bills that have been signed by the governor. I know there are some questions today that um, pertain to the new legislation. So we'll be talking about those as those questions come up. But be sure to tune in to the May 16th Virtual HOA Academy for the Neighborhood Services Departments from all around the Valley. You can find out more information on that on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. But there have been four bills that the governor signed. They are going to be going into effect um, 90 days after the Arizona legislature closes for this session. They haven't closed yet, so probably sometime this fall. But it's a busy legislative year, so we want to make sure that um, you're aware there are four new laws. We're going to be talking about them on May 16th, so be sure that you tune in then. Okay, let's go to our, our questions now. Question number one, how do we deal with a board member that insists on having the board create statements of work on everything that we have to that we have work to be done with professional companies. 
and experienced manager management management managers. Quotes from qualified companies should not be affected by inexperienced board members' ideas about evaluating their work. So this is one of those questions that, you know, when you serve on a board, you bring to the table different experience levels in dealing with vendors and everybody has a different professional background. And sometimes we see the board member that has like a highly specialized knowledge on something like an engineer. Um, They want to have more detail, like in the RFPs, requests for proposals. Um, And sometimes we have board members that maybe didn't have a detailed background and they just kind of fly by the seat of their pants when they're doing RFPs or they don't even do an RFP. Um, when they're bringing in vendors. So these are are difficult situations that you have to navigate when you're on the board because there's different personality types and different business experience levels. So it sounds like in this association, we have a board member that is trying to, you know, be like a detail nut basically on everything that is being bidded out to have a professional company come in and do work in your association. And that is potentially driving at least one other board member nuts. And so how do we work on that? And I guess what I would do is bring in your trusted advisors to give advice to your board on this because board member to board member challenging this, the person that wants the detail, the high level of detail, their back is going to be up against the wall and they're going to push back on you. But I think they're going to be more receptive to having your attorney or maybe even somebody on your management company team that might be in like a manager of managers come in and just talk a little bit about, okay, what are the type of things that we have to have? detail on when we're hiring a vendor and what are the type of things that we're turning away vendors don't even want to bid because you're making the the bidding process so difficult and then have the trusted advisor talk to your board about okay hey this might be a little overkill or you need to do a little more detail when you're bidding out a five hundred thousand dollar re-roofing project i think that's the best way to handle it because one board member just telling another board member, like, we don't like this. It's, it may not go over well. It probably need to bring in somebody independent to advise your board on that. Okay, next question, number two. We are a small five-building condominium association, approximately five units per building. So 25 units total. Most of the units are owner-occupied. Residents are concerned the quality of the community is being impacted as more units are becoming rental units. Can we restrict rental units to one or two units per building or some total rental units for the whole development with grandfathering in any existing rental units until they are sold in the future? Um, We have a great cheat sheet on this called Amending CCNRs and Implementing Rental Restrictions that I hope you'll take a look at. Quick short answer would be just evaluating this if I had this come into my office. As a question, I would say that condominium associations, it's a lot harder to um, implement a CCNR changes to prohibit rentals. And that's kind of what you want to do. You only want to have a certain number per building. Because you say that you're a condominium association, that likely is a change of use and will require 100% of your members to approve that, which will be very difficult. What you may want to consider doing is implementing a minimum time period for the rentals which would be like a minimum 90 days rentals or something like that, which would only require, in my opinion, an amendment to the CCNRs. I'm going to briefly mention that there was a case that was decided in 2022 that does impact um, how amendments to CCNRs are done. And so I'm aware of that um, and you should be too. So what I would say is reach out to our firm. We can give you some suggestions on how you might want to structure this so that you're in compliance with the state law 
um, in the Condominium Act on you know, compliance with your documents in terms of amending CCNRs. And then we also want to factor in the Callaway case, which is a case from last year. Um, so give us a, a ring on that and we'll be able to help you. Okay, next question. What is the prop number three? What is the proper way of listing candidates on the ballot? I feel that the process that is used is unfair and prejudiced. There have been candidates that have run in several elections and their names are always at the bottom too. For example, if you have five people on the ballot running for the board, generally the first three people are voted in if three positions need filling in. I think it should be alphabetically or by seniority at our association. This has become a popularity contest. Very interesting. Okay, I honestly, I've never had this question before. I have had people say that they don't like it when incumbents are listed on the ballot, like the person association puts the name and then they have incumbent after it. So there really are no hard and fast rules on this. It's going to be just what, however your board wants the ballot structured. What I would advise if I were giving advice to a client on this is if somebody is complaining about this and they have a rational complaint, you know, maybe the board should consider just putting the names in alphabetical order um, instead of having some sort of a special way of alphabetical order by last name. I don't know exactly how you're they're doing it here. I guess you may be claiming that the first three people are voted in and they word it that way. Maybe the first three people are incumbents. I don't know. Just so you know, I've counted a lot of ballots over the past since 1996. And I can tell you that I've been to thousands of annual meetings and it has not been my experience. Just so you know that the first three candidates are always the ones that are selected. In fact, it's the complete opposite because when you count so many ballots for a living, if we saw that trend, what we would just do is we would just put them all in a pile and then just count the number of ballots. But that's not how the counting ever works. It's always a mixed bag of how people vote. So just some experience from being in the trenches. That has not been my experience after, you know, conducting thousands and thousands of annual meeting elections and counting the ballots myself with a team. Okay, um, next question, number four. Can a homeowner request the HOA provide info on any current litigation against the HOA? How specific case number, status, charges against the association, parties, et cetera? I mean, so can you request this information? Of course you can as a homeowner. Does the association have to respond? You know, if I were advising the association on this, I would say you can give general information. If a homeowner asks for this, we're honestly, we're not required to because under the law, we would only be required if you made a records request to provide information on records that pertain to the association. In this case, the records are going to be regarding pending litigation and we wouldn't have to provide anything. If, you know, we're doing a disclosure statement for a sale of a property and we're required under the disclosure statement to provide a listing of the cases that might be against the association, but as part of the disclosure statement, we would be required to do that to the buyer. Um, but in your circumstance, you're an owner, you just want information on this litigation. So what I would recommend is just send a, an, an email or a letter to the board and say, I understand that we're involved in litigation. Can you tell me the name of the litigation, the case number? you know, and give me a couple sentence summary of what's going on in this case. They're not required to, but they can, they choose to. What you may want to do is you can just find all this information online. So just if, it, if you're in Maricopa County, which I see your association, I'm familiar with your association. I know you are in um, Maricopa County. 
go to Google, type in Maricopa County Superior Court, and then click on case history, type in the name of your association under the business name, and all the litigation pertaining to your association will come up. Now, it won't give you anything more than the name of the association. It'll tell you what the pleading status are, meaning like what's been filed with the court, and it'll give you the case number. And if you're that interested, you can always go down to call the Superior Court, find out how you can go and actually look at the case file if you're so inclined to do that. Okay, next question, number five. What is the liability of having a fenced dog park in our community? Please address how insurance will be the same or different with a dog park in our public space. Great question. So a number of associations have dog parks. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like 50%. I'd say maybe it's fenced dog parks, like maybe five to 10% of associations may have that, maybe even a little less. But a lot of associations have, you know, an area where there's like dogs can play, et cetera. They may be on a leash. They may not be on a leash. What I would recommend here is if you're concerned about liability um, and you're a board member, so I see from your, um, when you submitted this, is talk about this with your insurance agent. You know, call up your insurance agent, let them know that you have a dog park. Are there any special insurance requirements? Talk to your legal counsel. Should there be signage posted? Should there be rules for this area? Probably a, a good rule would be, you know, and our firm could help you write up something like this if you wanted to, but maybe the dogs must be on a leash um, in this area. I, I don't know. Usually in dog runs, dogs are not on a leash. Maybe enter at your own risk. Maybe dogs that have propensity to be more aggressive need to have a muzzle. Um, you know, I'm sure we could think up some good rules on this to help limit your liability, but probably the most important rule is going to be to have a sign that says that you're entering at your own risk and um, that you also should be reaching out to your insurance agent to find out if you get additional insurance for this or if they have any concerns regarding it. So I think those are some good suggestions on how you can limit your liability. Is there liability? Yes. There's liability at the pool. There's liability in the common areas. There's liability in the parking lot. It's all how you manage it. Um, and things can happen, unfortunately, in associations, dog bites and against a person or a dog bite against another dog. And we just want to do everything we can to limit our liability as the association and make sure that nobody gets injured or, or damaged. Okay. Next question. Number six. This is manager. Great to see you again. Um, I get to see you through the first Fridays. When voting via email, can an architectural submittal get approved by the architectural committee by majority rules? For example, the submittal is approved by three members, two members oppose, and the committee voted by email. Okay, so let's back this up just a little bit because it's important that I talk about committee meetings. So architectural committee is obviously a, a committee for the association that typically is going to be reviewing applications for architectural changes to an owner's property. If it's a regularly scheduled committee meeting, uh, meaning that your architectural committee meets once a month at the same time, it needs to be an open meeting, just like a, an open board meeting would be required for a regular board meeting. And so I would be, I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't mention that. I don't know if this particular association has regular architectural committee meetings. If you do, it needs to be an open meeting and you can't make a vote like this by email. If your association does not conduct regularly scheduled architectural committee meetings, you know, then I guess it's kind of a gray area as to whether this decision can be made by email. 
I mean, best practices, of course, would be that the architectural committee is meeting and discussing this in person. But I do know from experience with working with so many associations that some architectural committees that don't have regularly scheduled meetings, they do do a lot of their business by email. So in this case, you're asking me, can our association make this decision, our architectural committee make this decision by a majority vote? Um, It appears yes. One thing I'm going to tell you, though, is whenever you have a contested vote on something like this, there's going to be trouble, right? It's either that the other architectural committee members that were outvoted on this are going to be unhappy with the decision. The homeowner is potentially, the homeowners actually probably should be okay because it's going to be approved, right? Um, But the neighbor might not be okay with it that isn't happy with whatever this person's trying to submit. And when you're in these kind of contested architectural votes, it's probably a good idea to do this in person at a meeting um, so that if it's challenged, you know, we've done everything by the book. And if you do have regularly scheduled meetings of the architectural committee, like I said, this, this must be done in an open meeting of the architectural committee with proper notice to the membership. So I hope that answered your question. You know, I don't have all the facts, but it's okay based on the facts you gave me. If you don't have regularly scheduled architectural committee meetings, and if you don't think it's going to get challenged by an owner or maybe even the two board members or the two architectural committee members that voted against it, you probably aren't going to have any big issues on it. But if you think that there's going to be a lot of dissent on this, I'd pull it back and have a meeting um, of your architectural committee to formally vote on this and have meeting minutes. Okay, next question. Number seven, are there any negative insurance implications with allowing neighbors outside of our community to walk or bicycle on our private streets. So I don't know on this question if, um, and you're a board member that's asking this question, I don't know if you're like a gated community or if it's some sort of, you know, they're trespassing type of thing. I doubt it because it seems like you've been allowing them in the past to walk or bicycle through your streets. One thing you could do is ask your insurance agent. So are there any should we be concerned about this under our insurance policy and see what they say? I generally speaking, if it's not a gated community, and even though you may, they are private streets, it says, typically there people are coming in and out all the time, whether they're driving or bicycling or maybe even walking. And I'm not sure you can prohibit them from doing that if it's not gated. If you're allowing it, what I would say from just going back to my bar exam days from, you know, 1996, what I would say is that if they're like a trespasser, there's a lower standard of care. But if they're like an invited guest, you know, we would have a higher standard of care in terms of maintaining the road. So like, let's say there's a pothole in your road and, you know, somebody falls just depending on what type of a guest they are, or if they're a trespasser, there's a different standard of care but that's kind of going all legal wonk on you. And I'm not really sure that we need that for this question. So short answer would be talk to your insurance agent. Are there any issues on this? And then think from a practical standpoint, could we even keep these people out? If we don't have a gate, they're going to be coming in and out all the time. So it might not even be possible to do that. Okay, question number eight from one of my really favorite board members in the community. So good to see you submitting a question and hearing from you. We are a gated community with 107 homes and private streets. We have been experiencing repeated vandalism at our community's pool. And each time I make a police report, the officer tells us we need cameras in the community, especially in the pool area. As a board, we've decided now to install them. 
Are there any restrictions we need to be aware of besides posting signs and notification of our residents? And how do we handle homeowners' objections? Okay, this is actually a really good question. And I think we should write a blog about this. So for my team that's listening, I think that I'm getting this question now. This is the third or fourth time I've heard this in the past month. And I think we should start talking about this with everybody. Okay, so in terms of what are some suggestions I have if you are putting cameras in your community on the common areas, number one, they shouldn't be pointed at anybody's home or unit because that's an invasion of privacy. So I'm assuming as a baseline that you, you're already doing that. You're just putting it at your pool area. I think posting the signs is necessary. Number one, notifying your residents that the cameras have been installed. Make sure that you let them know that there's not 24-hour surveillance on them because you don't want um, someone to have a feeling that, oh, there's cameras at the pool and you know someone's watching my children who are there alone because that's obviously not happening. Just explain the purpose of the cameras. So we're putting the cameras, they're in this location at the pool or wherever you're putting them. The purpose for the cameras is that we have a lot of vandalism and you know we're hoping that by having the cameras there, it'll deter people from vandalizing the area. Or if they do, we'll know who it is and we'll be able to you know, pursue them legally for the damage that they're causing. Make sure that they know that there's not 24-hour surveillance of this. Make sure that the entire board knows how long that video footage is kept for. I've seen associations, I mean, it depends on what kind of system you have, and you don't have to notify the entire community of this, but you want to know as a board, okay, they only keep the video for five days. So if there's damage over the weekend at the pool, we better get on getting that video right away, uh, maybe to see what transpired. One thing that other associations have done that I think is really smart is that the cameras only are working when there's movement. So there's not a bunch of video footage, you know, where nothing's happening. So I don't know if those are the kind of cameras you installed, but I think that's a good idea. If there are homeowner objections, you know, I think listen to their objections. The most typical ones that we hear are invasion of privacy. And I think we cover them by saying, hey, the cameras aren't pointed at anybody's individual unit or home. They are only pointed at the common areas. And there's a safety reason for this that, you know, in a catalog of vandalism. And we're doing this so that the vandalism stops because ultimately that costs everybody money. And if they say, well, I want to be able to get into the jacuzzi and not have a video of it, just provide assurances to them that this video was not used for surveillance of owners. It's basically just used for determining who's causing the damage or the vandalism at the pool. We have two great resources for you. We have a blog on security cameras, um, which is really helpful. And we hope that you'll take a look at that. We're going to be sharing that on Zoom and Facebook Live. And then we also have a cheat sheet on preventing crime and limiting liability, which has some great tips for associations if you're seeing a rise in crime um, in your associations. And just on a side note, I'm starting to hear more and more questions about vandalism stolen cars, cars being broken into, homes being broken into an association. So that's a really important cheat sheet right now for associations to be looking at. Okay, next question, number nine. If repairs are needed for the common grounds or sprinkler systems for which the association does not have the requisite funds available and the owners have rejected both a loan or a special assessment to pay for the repairs, does the board have the power to take out a loan and increase the monthly assessment without approval of the owners? Oh, you guys have some difficult problems right now. And so I guess what my comment would be, if your documents, I'm guessing that you 
went to the owners for a vote because your documents require a vote before you could take out a loan. So if that's the case, you're, wouldn't be, it would not be a smart thing to do to just go ahead and do it, despite the fact that the owners don't want you to do it. You know, in situations like this, I think we, we have to go back to look at the documents, number one, if I were looking at this, and determine what rights as a board do we have to get funds for the association? Can we increase the assessment rate? Can we adjust the budget without a vote of the members? What does it take to do a special assessment? Can we take out a loan? Are there any other ways that we can fund these necessary improvements that are needed for our community? And then I think we need to come up with a plan in terms of, okay, what's what are some feasible options here? And maybe we need to go back to the owners for the vote and have a better PR campaign, public relations campaign to get them to vote yes on this. But you definitely need your legal counsel involved on this for sure, because you're you know, the first vote didn't go well. Now you're thinking about possibly just doing it anyways. And that could result in a lawsuit, which is going to cost you more money. And you're already, you know, negative on the money to begin with. So please be careful on that one. For our firm's happy to help you on this. We've helped a lot of different associations manage situations like this where they're in a pickle. Basically, they don't have the money. Things need to be done and they can't get the owners to approve it. And we can give you the formula to help you get the homeowners to get on board to help you approve this. Okay, next question, number 10. Um, this is from a board member. We have a new homeowner that is demanding to have an in-person meeting with the board and homeowners. We have not had an in-person meeting for over three years and plan to continue having virtual meetings. Our community does not have any space available for meetings. In the past, we would rent space at a church for our annual meetings. We are a community of 49 townhome units. At the most, we may have five members plus the board at the annual meeting. The board has decided not to meet him in person, but will gladly have a virtual meeting. Is it unlawful not to meet in person? So really good question. I mean, all of these are kind of new questions since the pandemic. I guess from my experience, we do not see boards having in-person meetings as much anymore. I mean, if I had to give you a percentage, I would say, I think we're probably at like 85 or 90% of our clients are meeting by Zoom or virtually. And, you know, the rest maybe are still doing in-person meeting. Some associations are doing hybrid where, you know, they may actually have an annual meeting in person, but maybe they're regular board meetings. Say maybe 70% of them are virtual and then maybe 30% are in person. So short answer on this is, you know, you don't have to meet in person for your annual meeting or your board meeting. The law does say that the meeting must take place in Arizona. And so that's kind of, that law was written way before COVID. So we haven't seen any challenges to that. I always like to think about what's a solution here that is going to help the situation. You've got an owner, a new owner who wants to have a meeting in person. Would a board member be willing to meet this new owner for coffee or meet in the common areas of the association just to talk things through? Because obviously this person wants to have some in-person communications. That would be what my recommendation would be as a first line of defense. Um, and then maybe they can explain why we're doing the virtual meeting. We don't have, we'd have to spend money to, to rent a room and more people like the virtual and we have maybe board members and homeowners that don't live here and then they're able to participate. Um, just try to talk it through with that person and maybe you can find some common grounds. What you may find is that they're not tech savvy 
And if that's the case, you know, they can always dial in to the Zoom meeting. All they need is a phone. So I would have at least one person on the board volunteer to meet with them or have a phone call with that person just to kind of welcome them to the community and find out more about why they feel it's important to meet in person and and then just also be nice and let them know this is why we do it the way we've done it and how can we get you to participate virtually. But you're not required to, you know, switch to in person just because one person is is requiring you or asking you in your community to do it. Okay, next question, um, number 11, does our HOA need to keep copies of titles in our files for people who no longer live here or who have already passed? If yes, for how long and why, since they are already in the history of the unit in the county recorder's office? So, you know, no, you're not required to keep a copy of the deed, which is kind of like another name for the title. All of this information is found online with the Maricopa County Recorder's Office. Um, my office just notified me um, and put a note um, on my uh, computer that we have 87 live viewers here this morning on Zoom, and we are up to 67 questions, which is uh, a double-breaking record for First Fridays. I don't think we've ever had this many people live and also this many questions. So that being said, I better get back to the questions. <laughs> Number 12, um, this is from a manager. Great. And one of my favorite managers that I work with, too. So great to see you here today. We hold workshops in which the board discusses upcoming agenda items. Often, tie, often items are put on, a, on the consent agenda. However, homeowners would like to comment on the agenda items at the board meeting. We would rather keep the workshop as is. How do we handle homeowner comments on a consent agenda items? Okay, this is a really good question. So I'm familiar with your association because I am the legal counsel for them. And I guess one thing that I would say is, okay, so you have a workshop, I'm familiar with that, where the board just kind of talks through issues, but no votes are taken. Then I think what happens is those items, you probably, the items that you talked about in the um, workshop are then put on a consent agenda for the regular board meeting where actually votes are being taken. So on a consent agenda, typically how it works, for those of you who may not be familiar with them, is that at the beginning of the meeting, typically, they'll have 10 things listed on a consent agenda. And you do a yay up or a nay down on all 10 of them at the same time. And so there's a couple ways you as a board can handle this. Probably the easiest way to do it is even on a consent agenda, there has to be a motion to approve it and a second. And then there's the discussion is open, right, on any of those items on the consent agenda. So when the discussion is open for the consent agenda, yay or nay, on however many items there are, any homeowner who wants to contribute on that should be allowed to contribute at that time. And so, you know, that's one way to handle it. Another way to handle it would be for the agenda for the meeting where there's going to be a consent agenda, have that agenda be very detailed so that we know exactly what the consent agenda items are and very specific about what's being voted on. And any owner that wants to comment on the consent agenda, you know, you could make an announcement that they can do that during the homeowner forum before the board meeting even starts. So hopefully that gives you some suggestions on how you can best handle homeowner comments on a consent agenda. Okay, next question, number 13. Um, with respect to voting rights, our CCNRs specify that a person must be a member homeowner and that each lot gets only one vote. 
If two or more people own the lot, they only have one vote. With respect to eligibility to be a board, to be a director, the person must be a homeowner. The bylaws do not specify the one lot, one vote restriction. Do you think the same one lot, one vote restriction with respect to voting at the annual meeting applies to having a vote on the board of directors? We are considering amending the bylaws to make this limitation clear. Okay, so good question. This is a good thinking question. So it is one vote per lot in like 99.9% of the cases in nature or condo. So for example, like for your annual meeting, you get one ballot for the issues that pertain to that annual meeting. And you only fill out one ballot. Even though you may have two owners of a lot, you get one ballot. Now, where this gets tricky is where you have boards, right? Because typically the qualification to run for the board is that you only have to be an owner, right? A record owner. So in theory, for example, my husband and I own our property together. So in theory, we get one vote at the annual meeting, right? But in theory, because we're both owners, we both could be board members at the same time because the only qualification to be on the board is to be an owner. And so I think what you're, where you're going on this is if you're elected to the board and you, know, you have two people from the same household that owns one lot, does that mean only one vote for board issues if you're both elected to the board? And we've seen this before. No, it actually means two votes, one vote for each person who's on the board because you've met the minimum requirement to be a, a member of the board because you're an owner. And you both could vote, you know, like my husband and I get elected to the board, for example, let's say we own one lot and we both would be able to vote for ourselves on board issues. Now, this is not good, obviously, because I don't like seeing multiple owners from the same lot on the same board, just because I think it just is a bad balance of power issue on the board. And so that being said, you know, you said do you think that the same one lot, one vote restriction with respect to voting at the annual meeting applies to having a vote on the board of directors? You know, I don't, as I, as I already said, I think that if you're elected to the board, you get your one board vote per board member. What you may want to do is think about amending your bylaws to make it clear that, you know, we, we can't have two people from the same lot, two owners from the same lot voting on the board. Now, you got to be careful when you write that, though, because sometimes owners own two lots or two units. And, you know, you could have one owner from each of the lots that they own serving on the board, which I've seen too. So when you write up that amendment, you you know, make sure if you want to reach out to our firm, we can help you write that up so that you can um, get all angles on that. Make sure that you only have one person representing each lot. And then, you know, if you own multiple lots, you can only have one seat on the board for the multiple lots that you have. Okay, next question, number 14. A new homeowner inherited her mother's property. She will not accept HOA mailings nor sign the form to abide by the HOA's governing documents. What can we do? Okay, um, we've seen the situation before where there is a death of the owner and the family doesn't want the property. And I don't know if that's the case here. Probably what you need to do is do a little research or maybe have our firm help you do a little research on this. If the property is underwater, meaning that they owe more than the property's worth, what's probably going on here is that the, the daughter or the son who inherited the property doesn't want the debt, doesn't want the liability, and is worried that they're going to owe on this. Or maybe they don't even want to pay the monthly assessment. 
And so I would first check if I were looking at this issue, look and see, is there, what's the status of the property? Meaning is, is the mortgage being paid or the deed of trust being paid? How much is the property worth? How much is the mortgage? Is the property free and clear? Meaning there's no mortgage. And then I would try to reach out to the daughter or the son that inherited the property and find out what's going on. You know, if they refuse to communicate with you, which we've seen before, then, and they're not paying the dues um, or the assessments, then you really need to get some advice from our firm because you may be in a situation where, you know, you may either have to file a justice court lawsuit against them to get them to pay, or you may have to foreclose. And I don't even know like how the paperwork went after the mother passed away. Like has the paperwork even been transferred to the name of the son or daughter? Like was it a beneficiary deed or is this in a trust? And so you definitely need some advice on how to navigate this situation. And we're here to help you. So reach out to us. And so what can you do? I think I gave you some good suggestions. I think reach out to us, talk to the the person that inherited the property, look at how the property is titled. Um, has that property, you know, the title shifted to the new owner and then look at the value of the property and is the property underwater? Are they paying assessments? These are all issues that I'd be looking at. Okay, next question, number 15. I am wondering what a board member can do, let's see, when they contact a vendor and the vendor doesn't respond back. The president has made a ruling that if any board member contacts this vendor without permission, that they are now have to pay the bill for contacting the vendor. Let's see, I think a couple thoughts on this. So it sounds like there's some dysfunction on your board, number one, because you're not working well together. I think what I would do is I would first, I would bring it to your board and to your management company and just say, hey, I'm not feeling heard here. Sometimes what associations do is they have one contact person for vendors. So maybe one person deals with the landscaping company, one person deals with the law firm, one person deals with the management company. And maybe there's a reason for that. Like maybe in the past, somebody's had the most experience having landscaping experience, or they have a special interest in that. And we can't have six Monday morning quarterbacks running around telling the landscaper what to do because the landscaper doesn't get anything done or gets confused about priorities. And so I think what I would recommend is as a board, talk about this issue like, hey, why am I not allowed to contact this particular vendor? And is there a good reason for that? And how can I get my concerns regarding this vendor? Or how can I get my questions asked, brought to the attention of the vendor? Maybe the, the key person that deals with that vendor you know, can bring your question to them. But just talk through the issue with your community and recognize too that sometimes the vendor has been instructed, hey, you're not allowed to talk to anybody on the board, but the assigned person. So the vendor's hands may be tied and not be able to talk to you directly, um, which is always an uncomfortable position. I know I've had that happen as legal counsel for associations where, you know, a board member is reaching out to our firm about an association issue. And the board has said, like, hey, we only want communications to go through the manager. We only want communications to go through the one board member. And typically what I do in that situation is I respond back to the board member that's contacting me and say, hey, this, these have been my instructions. You know, can you take it back to the board first and then ask them to bring it to me? And if they refuse, then sometimes they'll say, send me an email and then I'll forward it to the board and ask them how I should handle it. Next question, number 16. 
Our property manager just notified the board about the new street regulation law and stated that we must have the vote no later than 90 days from the end of the legislative session. The law states that the vote must happen by June 2025. Please clarify the timelines as to when the membership must vote, as well as who must vote, and what would constitute a quorum. Okay, so great question. This is on some the new legislation that the governor recently signed. Now, remember, this is House Bill 2298, and this talks about you know, it's for planned communities only, and it talks about public roadways. And, you know, we're going to share with you right now just our little summary of this. We have a great summary that um, our firm has on our website right now on our homepage, mulcahylawfirm.com. And it gives you just a brief summary of what this new law says. So number one, based upon what you've told me, I don't think that what your manager is saying is correct. And we would not recommend that you do this vote before, I think you said, before the legislative session ends. There are no later than 90 days from the end of the legislative session. So it sounds to me like what this manager is trying to do is like get you to take this vote before the legislative session ends. And I'm not exactly sure what they want you to vote on, but I, I think you you definitely need to talk with your attorney about this. Um, I would not let the manager pr pressure you into doing anything because what they're seeing, I don't know where they're going on this because I don't have your documents, but it's not something that it's looking like I would recommend. And so contact our firm. We'd be happy to take a look at it, give you some advice as to whether or not it's a good idea. What you don't want to do is spend a bunch of money on an amendment and then have it not even jive with the new law. And remember, the new law is not going to go into effect until 90 days after the legislative session ends. So I'm kind of scratching my head wondering why you're getting pressured to do this um, in that 90-day window. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. So reach out to our firm and we can talk more about it. And then look at the our summary of it regarding the specific questions you have on the timelines for the new legislation. Okay, next question, number 17, um, from one of my very favorite board presidents. So great to see you here. Post-pandemic, we've transitioned to Zoom-only meetings. This initially boosted attendance. Our manager routinely records meetings. This has been helpful in a couple of situations but it seems to be leading to decreased owner participation in meetings and increased post-meeting requests for links to recordings. We're committed to transparency, but concerned about the trend of substituting attendance with post-meeting review of recordings. Recently, only three owners attended in addition to board members. Are we required to, to record the board meetings, provide links, post links online? Any suggestions? Okay, so we've kind of talked about this issue twice now, and I think just for my team that's listening in today, I think we probably should do, you know, a communication on this, maybe even a blog or a Mulcahy memo on this about the whole idea of, um, and I'm kind of laughing because one of my team members proposed to do virtual meetings, but I think that the take that we should talk on this would be our board's transition now to virtual meetings. Do we have to go back to in-person meetings? And then also some of these issues that are raised here, do we have to take these meetings to, to record them? And we have post links and give them the links online. And how do we best handle this? Okay, so my suggestion for you, number one, like I said, most associations are conducting their meetings now, regular meetings and annual meetings, a great majority are doing Zoom only. And that is okay. And I think we all saw a bump in attendance on Zoom. Why? Because it wasn't that much going on, right? <laughs> um, I think people initially really got into going to board meetings on Zoom 
because it was available and it was new and it was novel. But now kind of all settled into our routines post-COVID. And if you have three owners attending in addition to the board, guess what? That's a good attendance. Um, because when things are running well um, in a smaller association, you're not going to have 30, 40, 50% of your owners attending a regular board meeting. In fact, I know just with my association, we never have anybody come. Just last month, we had one person come and it was kind of shocking and surprising. So you're doing things well if you don't have a lot of attendance at your board meetings. That's something you just need to hear feedback on. Okay, so I guess the, the questions are, should you be concerned that you have so few people attending your Zoom board meetings? If I had to guess, it's probably more than you had when you had in-person meetings. Maybe I'm wrong. Are we required to record the meetings? No, you're not, but it's a good idea because you have demand for it, right? People are asking you after the meeting, hey, can we see a copy of the recording? Now, whether they're watching it or not, I don't know, um, but they want to see a copy of the recording. And I think it's a good thing. They want to know more about the community. They're interested. And so should you provide links? Yes, I think it's a great idea. Are you required to provide links? No. Should it be a hassle to provide the links? No, it should just be something that you just push out and it shows that you're being transparent, that you encourage people to attend the meetings or if they can't attend at the time of the meeting to listen to the, to the recording of the meeting. Should you post links online? I probably would put that in a protected area. So password protected area, I wouldn't just post that online for the general public um, would be my suggestion on that. Um, and just kind of a closing statement, remember that the associations that communicate the best are the ones that have the fewest problems. So if you're open to having these recordings available and giving people sharing the links if they want them or even putting them on a password protected area on your website, it's a good thing. It shows that you are wanting people to know what's going on in your association. Okay, next question, number 18. The board, the last 1.5 years, have a history of email votes for non-emergency issues. When challenged, the response from the board attorney, the association is a nonprofit corporation. As such, it's subject to the Nonprofit Corporation Act in addition to the Condominium Act. And that states that any action that the board is permitted to take at a meeting may be taken outside of a meeting by written consent. Okay, this the section that you're talking about in the Condominium Act, that's actually not the Condominium Act. That is the Nonprofit Corporation Act, the section that you put in this question. Okay. The written consent must describe the action taken and be approved unanimously. Thus, per ARS 10-3821A, the board of directors is permitted to vote by email so long as the vote is unanimous. Can you comment on this? Yes, I can. You're an owner and a former board member. I, I can tell that you're probably concerned about them taking votes like this. Our firm, as a policy, does not suggest that boards do this. And there are multiple reasons why. First, the Condominium Act and the Planning Communities Act require that anytime the board, form of the board, takes formal action on something as an association, so votes on a matter, it needs to be done in an open board meeting. And if you read the, the statute specifically, it's the intent of the legislature that, and they say this, that all decisions by the board need to be done at an open board meeting. So to go around the Condominium Act and the Planning Communities Act, and try to use the Nonprofit Corporation Act when there's already a specific law on this in the Condo Act and the Planned Communities Act, and to use this 
you know, the Nonprofit Corporation Act as a workaround, it's it's not right because there's already a specific law that says that condominiums and planning communities have to do this during an open board meeting. And, you know, anyone who's familiar with the law should know that there have been two cases decided by administrative law judges in Arizona that say you specifically cannot do that. Um, now, they're not reported decisions in the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court of Arizona, but they are instructive to us as to how courts would rule on this. And so what we tell our clients best practices is don't use email to take votes. Don't be using these unanimous consent provisions, even if it's in your bylaws that you can do it because it violates the open meeting law that's listed in the not in the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act. Only time we suggest that you can use email is if it's an emergency situation and a decision needs to be made immediately and we need all hands on deck because we cannot wait 48 hours to make a decision on something. And if you do do that, then you just need to read into the record at the next board meeting what the decision was, why it was an emergency, and attach the emails that support the decision that the board made. Okay, next question, number 19. Would you explain the Arizona open meeting statutes as it relates to communicating between board members and the management company? For example, FYI emails, committee reports, new HOA issues after an HOA meeting, email discussion, including all board members. Okay, so you're wanting to know, this is another email question. So what type of things can the board and the management company communicate on outside of a meeting without violating the open board, without violating the open meeting? That's basically your question. So you're wondering, are FYI emails okay? Yes, they are. As long as there's not any discussion after the FYI email is sent out to you know the board. So let's say that the manager sends out, here are three bids for tree trimming. Just leave that, don't respond. Or if you're going to respond, respond to less than a quorum so that you're not getting into discussion with the quorum of the board. Committee reports, fine, just send them out. Here's the committee report, let's discuss it at the next meeting. New HOA issues, this happens all the time. Okay, so you have your board meeting and then of course, Four hours after the board meeting ends, this big emergency comes up or there's new information that that we didn't have in time for the board meeting. Here's the letter from the opinion letter from the attorney. Take a look at it. You know, just forwarding that information and providing that to each other, that's fine. Where you get into trouble is where a quorum of the board is now discussing all this on email or a unanimous decision by the board outside of the board meeting, like we just talked about in the last questions. That's where you get into trouble. Okay, next question, number 20, from a community manager. Do you need to keep physical copies of HOA disclosures, records, HOA annual meetings and minutes, or is it just okay to keep a copy on the computer? And for how long? Okay, it's a great question. So we have a a wonderful cheat sheet on keeping records. It's called Community Association Records and Documents. And actually, this would be a great topic for us to continue to write on, especially during the summer months when we have time to go through our files and get rid of files, et cetera. Okay, so question is, do we need to keep a physical copy? No, you do not. But you do need to have that online copy being safe. So a lot of associations have their documents saved in the cloud and there's multiple backups and you're not going to lose it. So it's okay to keep a copy on the computer. You know, you don't have to print everything out and keep it in a storage facility. But if you're keeping these documents on your computer, make sure that you're doing it in a safe way so that 
you know, it's not like somebody's hard drive and then there's a water damage thing and then everything, all the records of the association are gone. That is not good business practices. And that possibly could be a breach of fiduciary responsibilities. Um, in terms of how long you have to keep records, look at our cheat sheet on this. We've got great tips on it, specifically on the cheat sheet that we shared with you. I mean, as a matter of course, keep your meeting minutes forever. That's the history of the association. Keep your documents forever. HOA disclosures, I would keep those in the lot owner file. That would be my recommendation. There's a six-year statute of limitations for breach of contract. So some of the documents that you may have in a file, you may not need to keep more than six years. But like I like architectural requests to be in there because that's the history in the file. And we know if somebody, you know, had approval or didn't get approval. So if there's a specific question on, you know, whether you should toss something or keep it, reach out to our firm and we're happy to, to answer that question. Look at the cheat sheet though, because we have some good timelines on how long you really need to keep things. Okay, next question. Park links at superstition. Oops, sorry, I read the wrong thing. Um, I'm going to skip to the next question and put that one somewhere else so I don't violate their privacy. Okay, next question is, this is regarding sheds and we're on question number 22. There are guidelines for height placement in our CCNRs. There have been four sheds put up that do not adhere to the guidelines. I inquired with the HOA manager and was told that an architectural request had been submitted and approved. I asked why they were approved when they didn't meet the criteria. I didn't receive an answer. I asked if I could review the request and was told they are attached to the owner's account and are private. I asked if I could make a records request to review them and told was told I cannot do this. Can I request them? Any suggestions? Hmm. Okay, so apparently this does happen, just you know, where you have a situation where there are violations in your association and sometimes, and they conflict with what your CCNR say. So that's looks what's, what's happening here. You've got four sheds. They don't meet the guidelines that have been put in place. I don't know if those four sheds were put up before the guidelines were adopted. I don't know if a board made a mistake and approved one by mistake. I don't know if the developer, sometimes the developers just approve anything, just keep everybody happy. I don't know what the background is on this. I don't necessarily think that this is private confidential information regarding an owner. Um, so remember when you make a records request, you can see basically everything, but you can't see personal information about an owner. I don't think this follows as personal. So I think that the management company should provide you with this document if you want it. But I guess my question to you is, why is it important? Maybe it is important. Maybe you want a shed that violates this. I don't know. But it's probably you indicated in your, your bio here that you're interested in running for the board. Is it something that is, is going to burn bridges by you pushing on this? Or is it something that's going to build bridges? Something to think about. Um, but you are legally entitled to see this is my bottom line opinion. Okay, next question, number 23. Our properties include a backyard that is defined as a limited common area where the owner has exclusive use of the backyard. Some owners have swimming pools. If someone should have a serious accident or death as a result of the swimming pool, is the HOA liable? So great question. Um, I'm assuming that these areas are enclosed. If you have a pool, I'm 99.999% sure that there's some sort of a fence or enclosure there. This is a really good question for your insurance company, um, your insurance agent. Is there any liability? I doubt that there is because it's a limited common area and it's exclusive use. 
but a good question for the insurance agent to answer for your association. Okay. And I'm assuming too that the owners maintain the pool, the owners, you know, are responsible for keeping the fence shut, et cetera, not the board. Okay. Next question. Number 24. Is it possible to amend our bylaws regarding the eligibility of a board member? Our current bylaws read, no person shall be eligible who is not at the time of an election, a member of the corporation. If not, is there another option? Okay. So you want to amend your bylaws for the criteria to be on the board. So I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, it seems like kind of a pretty legit provision here saying that, okay, you're not eligible if you're not a member of the corporation, meaning you're not on the deed. That's a pretty typical provision in terms of the eligibility. I mean, maybe are you trying to amend it so that the spouse of an owner can be on the board or so that non-owners can serve on the board? I'd have to hear more. That's sometimes we see that in the bylaws, but it's very unusual that that provisions maybe like 5% of the time we'll see that in the bylaws. So maybe you're having trouble getting people to run for the board. So is it possible to amend your bylaws? Yes. Is it a good idea? It's kind of a question mark to me because the way it's written right now is the, you know, the most typical way we see it. And we typically do want board members who are owners in the association because they have a vested interest because they own to do what's right right for the community. Okay, next question, number 25. Is the architectural committee rules and guidelines and association rules subject to the same rules as CCNRs in regards to votes needed to change a rule? Can the architectural committee be allowed to make changes? Examples, paint colors or landscape changes. You know, it really just depends. Typically, the the CCNRs are very specific in terms of how they can be amended. 99.99% of the time, it requires a vote of the membership. How the architectural guidelines or rules and the rules and regulations of the association are adopted is different. It depends on each association. Typically, the board has the responsibility to amend the, the rules and regulations for the community, and they don't need the homeowners to vote on it. And the same for the architectural committee. Sometimes it's the architectural committee can make them, but usually it's the board can make the architectural guidelines. And so I guess it depends on what your documents state, but is it common that um, paint colors and landscaping changes you know, it just depends. Usually it's the board. Sometimes it's the architectural committee that would make that decision and you wouldn't have homeowner vote on that. Of course, homeowner vote could be given. I mean, homeowner input could be given to the board because they don't like the new paint palette or whatever, but ultimately the board would be the one typically that would decide that or the architectural committee. Um, But look at your documents to see what they say specifically on who has the right to pass these rules. Question 26. Uh, from a board member, our annual meeting is next week, and we always include a copy of the minutes of the previous year's annual meeting in the packet sent out to homeowners ahead of the date, which is a good idea. That's how it should be done because, you know, now with the mail-in ballots or the absentee ballots, owners are being asked to vote on last year's annual meeting minutes, and if they don't have a copy of them, I'm not sure how they can vote yes or no to approve them. Okay, it says, in the past, we've always approved the prior year's meeting minutes at the meeting, at the annual meeting, as part of the agenda. But a board member is asking, we aren't just approving the minutes at the next regular board meeting held a month after the annual meeting. I tried to explain, as the board secretary, that our regular monthly meeting minutes are different from the annual meeting minutes. 
So need to be treated accordingly. Am I correct? Yes, you are correct. And so regular monthly meeting minutes are approved. So like the meeting minutes that we have from the April 2023 regular board meeting are approved at the regular board meeting, the very next one in May. The annual meeting same analysis. The 2022 annual meeting minutes are approved as part of the agenda at the 2023 annual meeting minutes or annual meeting when you approve the year prior's annual meeting minutes. So you just go from annual meeting to annual meeting. So it's weird because you have to wait a year to do it. And it's always a good idea. Best practices would be to do those minutes that night or that the next day. So while it's fresh in your head from the annual meeting. And of course, they can provide a copy of them to the board. Like here are the annual meeting minutes from the April annual meeting, but the board doesn't vote on them. The homeowners vote on them at the next annual meeting a year later. And the reason why they might be provided to the board is just FYI. And are they, you know, does anybody have any comments on them? So we can put them away for next year's annual meeting minutes. Some boards do that. Okay. We also have a great cheat sheet on annual meetings. If anybody's interested in looking at that on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay. Next question. Number 27, board member. We recently had a situation where the individual delivering the newspaper defecated and smeared feces all over the walls and other parts of the common area. Okay, that's not good. The custodial staff cleaned it up, but we think the newspaper should pay to have a hazmat team decontaminate it. Our owners don't feel comfortable with the cleanup and the newspaper will not return our calls. The paper talked with us this morning. It happened, but that was the last communication we had. What can we do? Okay, you probably, you definitely need to follow up on this. A, we need to determine whether or not that particular person who did this is coming back into our community. I I hope not. And I think, you know, the squeaky wheel sometimes gets the attention. So I would say if they're not responding to you, looks like I'm familiar with your association, have our firm reach out to the newspaper. I think we need to do like a demand letter, like, hey, this happened. We're documenting it. We want this cleaned up at your expense. We have the evidence showing that your employee did this. We don't want this employee coming back into our neighborhood and, you know, a demand on it. And then we may want to say is if you don't do it, we will pay to have somebody do it. And then we will potentially sue you for the actions of your employee. Um, But this should definitely be something that I hope you have evidence like pictures, et cetera. Um, and a log as to what happened and the proof and what happened when you contacted the newspaper the next day. That's a very odd situation. Sometimes I I think I've been doing this long and I haven't heard everything, but that's a new one. Next question, number 28. If a former management company paid some invoices twice, is there a time limitation for filing a claim for reimbursement due to their negligence if the vendor is unable to reimburse our association? The amount of overpayment is approximately five to $8,000. Oh, that makes me sick. A couple things. I don't know how long ago this was, but I guess my thought is six years back is the thing that's kind of popping into my mind. So you had a contract with whoever this vendor was and you overpaid them and you have six years to file a claim for breach of contract. Um, now, I don't know who the vendor is, but like, I know I'm a vendor for associations. If somebody overpaid me, we would let them know, especially if it was that much, it would be reflected on as a credit. And I think 
you need to reach out to the vendor and our firm could even help you with this if you would like us to. The vendor should make this right. Uh, and I don't know, sometimes on these things, there's all kinds of other dynamics going on. Like maybe you didn't pay the last bill or something. I don't I have no idea what happened here, but I feel that you should be able to get this money back. Now, if you can't get it back from the vendor, what about the former management company? They have some liability here. You also would have a six-year breach of contract claim against them. And just kind of a word for caution to everybody, this happens all the time. We've had cases where we've seen, you know, management companies overpaying, underpaying, paying the paying an invoice for another association with your association's money. And the best way to make sure that that's not happening is your treasurer needs to be looking at every invoice and every check to make sure that, you know, you're paying the right invoice. And some things I served as treasurer for my association for almost three years. And it's stressful being the treasurer because you have to look at every bill that comes into your association and you have to check to make sure that the bill is correct. You have to check sure, make sure that you're paying it on time. I was always looking for late fees. Like I want to make sure we're not getting dinged with late fees because we should be paying everything on time. Is this for our association? Is this expense something that's covered in our contract? Is or Why are we paying the extra? I mean, there's a lot of analysis that needs to be done on these. So And for those of you who are associations who are just delegating payment of all your invoices to the management company and not looking at things, be careful because um, these type of things do happen if you're not closely watching it. Okay, question number 29. Board members for past meetings, an agenda action item read and discussed. Sometimes there is a motion and a second, which is recorded, but no vote is recorded. However, one is at such meeting, it is understood that the item was passed, but minutes don't record as such. What is the legal status of the agenda item? Okay, the meeting minutes should properly reflect that if something had a motion in a second and it was passed, it should indicate that it was passed. So if you don't have the minutes accurately reflect what was done, when you're reviewing them at the next month's meeting minute, at the next month's meeting, you should do an amendment to the minutes to say, okay, that was passed. Now, I don't know, going backwards, I don't know how prevalent this is. Maybe you need on important votes, maybe you need to go back and make sure that we amend the minutes so that it reflects that it was passed. You know, I don't know what's bringing this to your attention, but the proper procedure on this is there needs to be a motion, a second, and then a vote. And once the vote is recorded, if it passes, it should indicate that it was passed. And if in the past you haven't done it this way, please start doing it that way in the future. If it's just like occasionally, maybe that, you know, it didn't happen. If someone's challenging it and you need to prove that it was passed, you better go back and amend those minutes to reflect that it was passed. Question 30. Can a homeowner take legal action against the HOA planting trees on the community's common areas? The homeowners are concerned that the trees can possibly interfere with their views. Okay, good question. And this is from a board member. Can homeowners sue the board for allowing owners to put trees on the common areas? I do see from time to time where there, especially where there's like limited common elements, where the board allows owners to put trees in. So this is kind of a, this, it's hard to answer this question in the time that I have. So was, were the trees done with the approval of the board? Did the homeowner just go out there with a tree 
and plant a hole and put a hole in and then plant the tree and then nobody knew where the tree came from. You know, I don't know the facts on this. So I guess there's this is almost like a bar exam question because there's a lot of like trapdoors on this. But okay, can a homeowner take legal action against the HOA planting trees? Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm misreading this. So I guess, can the HOA take legal action against the HOA planting trees on the common area? Because they are worried that the trees are going to interfere with their views. So it's not just homeowners. Sorry, I misunderstood that. So HOA is planting trees on the common areas and neighbors aren't liking it. So can we sue because the trees that the board is planting interfering with their views? Of course, you could take legal action against anybody, right? But what I can say is that the board has the right to plant trees on the common areas. Views are typically not a protected right unless you have a view easement that's recorded with the recorder's office. So you could take legal action on it, but likely the board does have the right to do this. Should the boards be thinking about this before they plant the trees? Absolutely. Even though the board can plant what they want on the common areas, if there's like no approved tree or plant list or whatever, you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to aggravate your owners or take away the beauty, the view that they may have on their property. So I think you want to be mindful of that. You don't want to be spiteful and oh, I'm going to put up a tree so they can't see Camelback Mountain anymore. That's, you know, not cool. But, you know, the board does have the right to do this and there is no view easement unless it's recorded. So it's kind of a push and pull, you know, and that that's the bottom line. So can you take legal action? Yes. But are you going to win? Probably not. Should the board try to be reasonable and work with owners? Yes. Okay. Next question. Number 31. Can the board demolish a well-established amenity such as the clubhouse without approval of the membership? The clubhouse, which is original, documented as an amenity, is solid block construction and structurally sound. Our board wants to demolish it because they don't want to maintain and or repair the electrical connection and cosmetic issues, aka an outdated interior. Can the board make this decision spending tens of thousands of dollars without the input of the membership? A couple things. You I need to see your documents. Sometimes in your documents, there's something about the change of use of a property. And most change of uses require a vote of the membership. So I don't know if this board got approval from the membership to do this. Sounds like it didn't. I don't know if the documents require approval of the membership because I don't have the documents. But this is the type of thing that's a big deal. And if they were my client, I would say, you know, you got to go to the homeowners and get buy-in on this, especially because the building is structurally sound. And it's probably not a good reason to get rid of it just because you don't want to update it. And so I think this board needs to go back to the homeowners. So I'd have to see your documents, whether I could give an opinion as to whether or not the board legally can do this or not. Okay, next question, number 32. We have a new secretary who is recording general meeting and executive session meeting minutes on a laptop. Is there any rule or law regarding digital storage of these minutes? Is a paper copy necessary? Seems redundant if so. Okay, so we kind of already covered this with a question previously. So it's fine if you keep them electronically, but they should be stored in a safe place. So just keeping them on the hard drive of the laptop is not going to be enough. These should be stored on the cloud with um, in a safe location so that we can access them at any time. And if there's a laptop stolen or damaged, we wouldn't lose the records. Okay, question number 33. As a COA, 
we would like to add asset preservation fee to our association's documents to raise additional revenue to pay for future capital maintenance and repairs. What steps do we need to take? Okay, we have a great cheat sheet on this called um, transfer fees and disclosure fees that I would like you to take a look at. Typically, you're going to need to amend your documents, um, your CCNRs, and there's a statute in Arizona that applies specifically to this um, with the specific things that need to be in your CCNRs. And so I would recommend that you, you know, reach out to our firm. We can help you. We have some standardized language that we use for an asset preservation fee. And we'd be happy to help you on this if you are interested. Okay, next question from one of my favorite clients. Good to see you here today. The pending Arizona House Bill 2251 addresses the issue of condominiums, insuring units, and common areas. Our HOA are attached townhomes that come under the condominium laws. However, our homeowners are responsible to carry their own insurance on their house and a lot, and the HOA has insurance on the common area facilities. The way this law is written, does it mean that the HOA must have coverage on the individual units? Okay, so just kind of a point of caution on this. This bill has not been signed by the governor, so it's not going to go into effect. It's still being discussed by the legislature. And so basically it's House Bill 2251 and it talks, it applies to condominiums and it talks about insurance coverage and claims. And basically this bill would require the association to maintain insurance on common elements and the units. It would give each owner the right to report a loss under the association's property insurance policy, which is kind of, I mean, the Condominium Act has very specific provisions regarding insurance. Prior to reporting a loss under the association's property insurance policy, a unit owner shall report the loss. I mean, it, it goes through the whole provisions here and it, it kind of addresses responsibility for deductible, et cetera. And so would this apply to your association? Yes. You know, we'd have to look at, you know, specifically whatever the final language is on this, because it might say something like, unless your documents provide otherwise, and in that case, your documents would prevail. So let's take a wait and see approach on this to see how this may impact your association. Okay, next question, number 35. This is from a homeowner. Our board is not following ARS 33-1803. They are assigning a violation fine 10 days from the date of the letter because they are leaving a postmark date off the envelopes okay, and not giving the 21 calendar days. The board has been informed of this, but they claim they only have to give members 10 days. The last courtesy notice my neighbor received, she sent a certified letter within the 21 days, but the board never responded to the letter. This time they sent her a violation fine letter, no courtesy letter. Have we missed something? Is there anything else we can do other than file another $500 complaint with the Arizona Department of Real Estate? Okay, so it sounds like, you know, you're a planned community and there is a situation in your community where somebody is violating the documents and the association is sending out a violation notice and then fining the owner. So for this particular statute that you mentioned to come into play, there are very specific things that have to be followed. Now, I don't know if maybe the association isn't complying with the response to the certified letter because their initial notice already had all the information regarding the violation notice in it. Um, and if that was the case, they, they may have already checked that box and complied with it prior to her even sending or him even sending the certified letter. So really hard for me to weigh in on this. 
I guess the most important thing to remember is that when you're sending out a violation letter to an owner in the community, you want to have everything that's required in ARS 33-1803 in the first letter, just as a matter of best practices. So the section in the CCNRs that's been violated, how the owner can appeal it, who's the person that witnessed the violation, all the different elements of 33-1803. That way that you've already checked the box and you know met the requirements of that statute. So even if the owner responds back with a certified letter, we've already met the requirements. Now, for best practices for the association, if an owner takes the time to send you a certified letter, respond back. Even if you've already provided the information, respond back because our goal is to get the violation corrected, right? And we've got somebody who's responding, which is a good sign. So that would be my best advice here and try to work it out with them. Um, if they're responding back, hey, it's not a violation. We don't think it's a violation. Well, then you've got a disagreement. And, you know, you may have to move forward with legal action against that owner. But I guess, have you missed anything? Is there anything else we can do? I mean, you want to go back and look at that first the letter that they sent you. They may have already checked the box and complied with it with the first notice um, before you even sent the certified mail. So they don't have to keep, you know, responding at it. Okay, let's see. The next question is number 36. We are a five-member board. Three would be a quorum. We have a committee of three members, two is a quorum. If three, I'm wondering, okay, so a committee, okay. If three of them have a committee meeting, not a regularly scheduled meeting, since they are all board members, does that mean it also has to be considered a board of directors meetings and therefore an open meeting? Oh, these are always difficult questions. Okay, so you have a five member board and then you have a committee that has three members. Um, this committee is separate from the board, I take it. It's not a committee that has regularly scheduled meeting minutes or meetings, so you don't have to make it an open board meeting under the open meeting law in Arizona. But there's a caveat here. All three of these committee members are board members. And so even though it's a committee meeting, you've got a quorum of the board meeting to discuss association business. So guess what? You have to make this an open meeting, an open board meeting, actually because you've got the three board members for a quorum meeting to discuss this committee business. I know that sounds just bizarre because it's a different committee, but it doesn't matter. You've got a quorum of the board meeting to discuss association business. So what I would recommend is for that committee, all your meetings should be best practices in my mind is that if you have three of them meeting to discuss committee business, it's you need to notice it. If you only have two, it's less than a quorum and it's not a regularly scheduled committee meeting, then you don't have to notice it. Okay, next question, 37. Is a private garage sale considered a business activity? In our gated community where homeowners own their lots, our CCNR state that homeowner may conduct business activity as long as it does not generate drive out traffic or customer or client parking and does not threaten the security or safety of other owners as may be determined in the sole discretion of the board. The gates would be locked open for the duration of the sales, but closed immediately afterwards. Can the board give permission for all individual homeowners to host garage sales one weekend per year? Okay, so I, you're a board member. And so I guess the first question is, is a garage sale a business activity? Probably based upon you know the definition that you've given me. Can the board override that and have a community garage sale once a year? We do see boards doing that. 
you know, it's just really up to a majority of the board if they want to allow this. Maybe if there are concerns from the neighbors. So typically what we find on these all association garage sales, some people are really gung-ho on it. And then some people are like, I don't want all all these people who don't live in our community coming into our locked community and able to get access to our community. So it's kind of a, some people want it, some people don't. The board's ultimately going to have to decide what to do. You may want to have extra security during that time if your board does allow it. I guess the question is, you're thinking of, is this a violation if the board's allowing business activities? It's one weekend a year, one whatever, one weekend a year, one day a year. I think the board should just go with what the homeowners want here. If you have a homeowner that's really objecting to it and says, hey, I'm going to sue you if you continue doing this, well, it does say no business activities and you may have some liability there. If you have homeowners that are just saying gently like, hey, I feel uncomfortable about this, you may want to bring in some additional security to help soothe the comfort levels or you may want to not have it at all. And, or maybe you have people that think this is a great thing, community building thing for the community and the board overrides it because it's just once a year. It's really going to be up to the, to the board to make that decision. Okay. Question 38. Our association only has three board members and all three wanted to be on the governing documents committee. Notice was given to all members of the association of the meeting. The reason of the meeting was to go over the governing documents and why a board meeting was called that a quorum of the board of directors would be attending. Our association has nine monthly and one annual meetings. Would this be called a special meeting? Okay, so your association has three board members. They're all on the document committee. And this is kind of just like that Mm -hmm. other committee question I gave you the answer to. It should be a board meeting because you have a quorum of the board meeting to discuss. Even though it's just the governing documents, it's still considered a board meeting. And you should give notice and make it an open board meeting. Okay, next question, 39. Can an HOA put conditions on who can run for a board position? Examples would be active participation in community committees, volunteer at community events, or perform service for the community. What the conditions are to be a board member are dictated by what your CCNRs say or what your bylaws say. So go back to that as the base baseline. So what, are this, what does it say? Typically, it's going to say you just have to be a member of the community. Um, we're seeing this question time and time again. So this might be something that we want to talk about as you know, a firm in our publications, because this is a good question. So who can run for the board? Look at your documents. Can the board make all these extra requirements that aren't in the documents? Probably not. So they may be wanting people like that, but unless it's in your documents, it can't be mandatory. Is there a state law? Next question. Is there a state law that specifically lists provisions for removal of a board member by the existing board? Yes. You want to look at Arizona revised statutes. If you're a planned community, 1833-1813. If you're a planned community, your condo, you want to look at ARS 33-1243. We also have a summary of it on our top 10 cheat sheet. Um, It's number six on the top 10 cheat sheet. Those of you who may not be familiar with our cheat sheets, They're just a great quick read on different topics. Um, We have over 60 of them. They're all on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. And I believe we're sharing that one with the group here right now. Okay, next one from one of my, another one of my favorite clients, uh, number 41 board member. When you are receiving garnishment payments on an account, are payment expectations provided? 
In other words, are payment timelines provided from the company making the payments? So great question. So garnishment payment comes into play when the association gets a judgment against an owner, and then we go and garnish the owner's employment to pay the debt that's owed to the association on the judgment. So the company typically will let us know how the employee is paid is the answer. So it's either weekly, every other week, and then we can use that as a guide to determine how often this owner is paid. Now, where this gets kind of dicey is if the owner's on a commission, like if they're a realtor, they only get paid when they get a commission, right? Or maybe if there's an unusual, they get paid infrequently, like once a quarter, you know? So we, it's good to open lines of communication. Most employees are getting paid weekly or every other week is actually the most common way that people are paid. And so we usually can see that just based upon when the checks come in. Okay, next question, number 42. This is from a community chair. We are a master association with 12 sub-associations comprising our community. All of the sub-associations comply with the requirements of ARS 33-1806 regarding the resale of units. We seldom ever are being aware of a unit resale within our sub-associations. Is the master association also bound by the provisions of this statute? So really good question. So technically, yes, I think both of you should be filling out the disclosure form. The title company is the one that's responsible to determine that, hey, there's two associations here and both of you need to fill out the form. Sometimes the title company doesn't pick that up, but it really should be done. Okay, next question, number 43. And I'm just going to do a quick check how many total questions we have. We have 68 questions today, so we're going to just keep moving forward. Okay, 43. I am in the process with another board member of filing a petition to remove our treasurer. Since starting this petition, both the president and the treasurer have been retaliating against me. And this person's a board member who's submitting this question. So board member submitting in the process of trying to remove the treasurer as a board member. Most recently, they have stated my ballot for an amendment change was set. When I stated I have not received it, they then began accusing me of trying to double vote. This would be due to me, including my mother, who is part owner of the house on my personal communications with the HOA. At what point do I get a law firm involved? Probably you always have a right as an owner to get your own lawyer involved. I mean, I guess from just looking at this, I think it's probably kind of petty, the dispute, you know, so there's, you didn't get a ballot, you know, or an amendment ballot. They're saying it was sent. Then they're trying to say you double voted. I think sometimes in these HOA disputes, we have to just take the high road, right? I, I don't think it's time to get a law firm involved. I think what you just need to do is just say, hey, there was a miscommunication here and be the bigger person. They're obviously upset because, you know, there's a petition to remove the treasurer. And I think in all these HOA and condo and community issues, if everybody could just take a step back at times and think the best in every situation, a lot of this pettiness and disputes between boards and owners and interboard disputes could be avoided. Sometimes you just have to take a step back and just say, okay, I'm moving on. I'm not going to go there. Um, and that's what I would recommend here. Of course, if you want to get an attorney, you can get one involved. I mean, I don't really know why you would get one involved at this point. If the ballot hasn't been submitted, get a copy, get a new ballot and submit it. If your mother submitted it on your behalf, 
just say, okay, my mom already submitted it. Sorry, I didn't know that. Move on. Okay, next question. 44, um, board member. We have a resident that owns three units. This person rents out their covered assigned parking spots to other residents with multiple vehicles. In our association, you only have one covered parking spot per unit. They then park their three vehicles in the unfortunately few unassigned spaces that are available closest to their home, leaving very few left for visitors and vendors and the like. We get many complaints about this practice, but I don't know if there's anything that can be done about it. Yes, that does seem like this isn't right, right? <laughs> okay, so, well, first of all, I would want to see what your documents say about parking, because I'm guessing that the unassigned parking spots are for visitors only. So I think the best way to handle this would be for the association's manager or the association's attorney to send a letter to this resident saying, you know, we understand that this is going on and you're violating by parking your vehicles on a regular basis in the unassigned visitor parking spots and you can't do this and then enforce it. But I'd have to see the documents to be able to determine, you know, whether they would even have the right to park in those unassigned parking spots. Okay, next question, number 45. I was recently elected again to the board. The president started his own maintenance company and has been hired to care for the community's lakes. It's a conflict of interest. The other board members and property manager don't see it as a conflict, mainly because he saves the community money. But this seems like a breach of fiduciary duty. Should I sue them? If so, for what? The board also fails to follow the bylaws. Okay, so it looks like you were on the board and then you were off the board and now you're back on the board. That happened to me too. That's an interesting that's an interesting position to be in. Okay, probably because things operated differently when you were on the board before and now you're coming back in and seeing things and shaking your head thinking, what? What's going on here? Okay, so I do see it as a problem, frankly, that the president is still the president of your association and he's getting paid or his maintenance company is getting paid to care for the lakes. I have a feeling that's probably a high ticket item, at least somewhere between $500 and $1,500 a month. I do think it's a conflict of interest. And I, as your attorney, I don't like it. Not because I think that there's anything that he's skimming or he's not actually doing the work. That's not my concern. My concern is it looks bad. And just, you know, under the law, the Arizona law really isn't worded very well. It's very loosey-goosey about conflicts of interest when it talks about board members. So what the law says in Arizona is that if a board member is going to hire a family member, or even themselves to, you know, work for the association, that it has to be disclosed at an open board meeting. And then before the vote is taken, and then surprisingly, the board member can even vote on it. So there may not be like illegality to this. It just doesn't sit right with me is what I would say. And so I guess that the questions that I would be asking your board are, is it necessary for this person to continue on as president. I mean, it just seems odd that the president's company is now maintaining the lakes. Maybe should we be thinking about maybe the president should retire from being on the board and just run the business, right? Therefore, there's not going to be a conflict of interest anymore. If that's not going to happen, then I think the best thing that you can do is just state your concerns in a meeting or in a letter, have the minutes reflected so that you can state that I don't like the way that this looks. I know that this vendor is saving us money, but president is uh, you know, running this company and it's creating potential problems down the road. Like what if we don't like the company anymore? We want to fire them. Is it going to be uncomfortable because an owner in the community 
owns the company and the board member is basically being fired. It's it's just a bad idea. So I'm not saying it's a breach of fiduciary duty. I don't know enough facts to say that. I am saying I think it smells like a conflict of interest to me, but it's not contrary to the Condo Act or the Planned Communities Act here. I don't like it. That's what I would say. So document in writing, I don't think you should sue them because I'm not sure you can win because like I said, the statute allows for it. I think you should just mention that I feel uncomfortable about this. I think it's potentially a conflict of interest just under the smell test that we have the president's company being hired to do the lakes. And is there a way that we can separate this possibly by maybe even having the president resign from the board? Okay, question 46. Our HOA's attorneys have looked at our documents and in their legal opinion, the front yards leading to our front doors are the homeowner's responsibility. The HOA's responsibility is to maintain the landscaping. I have acquired this document when requesting documents. So if the attorney's opinion is that the front yards are ours, do we have the right to do what we want to our yards? And can the HOA still fine us? So I'd have to see your documents to answer that question because it's going to be in your CCNRs as to whether or not you need to get approval from the architectural committee before you make changes to the properties. And so I would never want to just give you the green light to just go ahead and, and plant things. It sounds like there may already be like some threats of fines. So I think that, you know, you need clarification from your board. Okay. It appears that the front yards leading to our front doors are the homeowner's responsibility. And the HOA still maintains the landscaping here. Can we make changes to this, even though the HOA maintains it? And if so, how do we do that? Or if they don't allow it, then the rationale for them not to allow it. Okay, question number 47. We have street parking problems in our HOA neighborhood. As a homeowner and member in good standing, do I have the legal right to view a copy of our HOA's current contract with the towing company? Yes, you do. You just need to make a records request in writing to your board or your management company. The association does have the right to blacken out or redact how much they're paying the towing company. Um, just so you know that. So if you receive it back and it has a the amount that's being paid to them, blackened out, that's why, just as an FYI. Okay, question 48. Our 184 member HOA is self-managed. The treasurer has his personal home address on the HOA's bank accounts with the statements going to his home. The insurance policy also goes to his home. The HOA has an office in the clubhouse and a locked mailbox at the HOA address as noted on the ACC formula. Is this an acceptable practice and safe for the HOA? Should the membership demand the correct address be on HOA accounts? Okay, so this question is submitted by a member, your self-managed association. It appears that the a lot of the correspondence for the association, meaning the bank accounts, correspondence, the insurance policy are going to their the treasurer's home, but you have a mailbox at the HOA address. So I really do think it's best practices for all the mail to go to the HOA address for a number of reasons. I mean, what if something happens to the treasurer? They pass away. The mail would be being sent to the former address or they move. I think it's best always to have a formal address for an association that is maybe a PO box or like you have an address at the clubhouse. I think that's best practices. So I would encourage your board to change so that everything is going to that address. Sometimes maybe the treasurer 
it's inconvenient to go there. Maybe you could have these things sent to both addresses, but I also really don't like that because there's a high probability that there could be a screw up. So I think best practices would be that it goes to the association's address. Okay, number 49, 11 of the 21 homes have pavers, bricks, flagstone, or other material in the common area, either in front of the gates or going from their gates to the driveway or the street. Now, their homeowner is asked to put in a paver sidewalk from their gate to the driveway. It was decided for this homeowner to put in a sidewalk that they would have to sign a 10-item, let's see, a 10-item list explaining approval, responsibility for them, and new owner have sold adding the association as an additional insured in case of injury. No one else signed this form. Is this acceptable? Okay, so it sounds like about half of your owners have some sort of special materials in the common area. Um, And so this isn't on their property. This is in the common area of the association in front of their gates or going to their gates to their driveway, et cetera. It looks like it was decided at some point that when this is done. Now, if you want to do this, you have to follow these requirements. Since it's on the common area, you know, I think the board's within their rights to ask for these things. Again, you're being, you're getting a benefit. The homeowner's getting a benefit in that they get the papers that they want and they're spending, the homeowner's putting, you know, the papers in. I would require this, honestly, if I were legal counsel for the association, because What happens if you move or you pass away as the homeowner and you may have a handshake deal with the board, like, hey, I'll obtain these pavers, but then you're no longer there and the new owner moves in. Now it's going to be the association's responsibility to repair it. So I'm okay with the 10 list approval items as long as they're all reasonable. Okay. It seems to me like the these things are reasonable. Most of them are reasonable as long as you can get the insurance for that. I don't even know if that's possible, but based upon what you're saying, some of these extra things on the pen list seem okay. Okay, question number 50. There has been an increase in neighbor-to-neighbor complaints as it relates to approved construction, vendor traffic, all that goes on with construction. Aside from providing external resources to the owners, what is your best recommendation to the board and management company in response to these neighbor-to-neighbor disputes? Example, somebody's yard was dug up because a neighbor had approved construction and the utility company, as allowed, dug it up. I know owner A could recoup the costs of the utility company, but often both owners want the HVN management company to get involved. Do you have any best practices? Well, this is definitely an owner-to-owner issue, the one example that you gave me. And I think the board really needs to punt it back to the owners that thanks for bringing this to our attention. We're sorry that this happened. This is an owner-to-owner issue, and and both of you need to work this out between you or between the vendor that caused the damage to the one owner's property. If you try to insert yourself in this and get involved, it's it's not our issue. And if it goes wrong, you'll be blamed. And really, it's something that the owner that was having the construction either needs to make right or the company that did the, the dig up needs to fix. Okay, question 51. The HOA is condos within the master HOA. The master community has the architectural committee that approves such things as windows and landscaping. The board president independently trimmed two trees and then removed one of them. Too much shade. They submitted the request to the master HOA to remove both trees, and that was denied. The master HOA is strict. If something is removed, it must be replaced with like kind. 
The board president refuses to replace the tree. What can we redo? What can we do? And what are some steps to remove this board president? Okay, I don't know what your role is here, but it sounds like there's a master association and a sub-association. It sounds like the board president is associated with the sub-association. The board president, I don't know where these trees are located to. I'm assuming that they're on the common areas of the master association. So it sounds like the board president, I don't know if he's doing this as in his capacity as an owner or as the president of the board of the sub-association, trimmed the trees and then removed one of them. Previously, I don't know if they submitted this after the fact or previously, they, they asked for permission to have the trees removed and that was denied. Now the master association is upset because the board president is refusing to replace the tree. I mean, it sounds like this is an issue between the master and the sub, assuming that the president was acting on behalf of the sub. If there are specific things in the master association's documents that say that these things, that if you know you have to get approval and if you make changes and you don't have approval, we can take legal action, then maybe the master association needs to contact the sub-association, maybe through our lawyers. If it's on your property, um, meaning the master association's property, I don't know if maybe they can replace it and then try to charge the association. All this is going to be document specific. We'll have to look at what the documents say to give you the best advice. But I would open the lines of communication, probably have the master association's attorney write a letter to the sub-association. Okay, question number 52. We do not have enough members to attend our annual meetings. You can't get a quorum. The board has not rescheduled it and it has been six months. Does this impact our ability to do business? They're appointing two new board members since there were insufficient members who cast votes, but we will not be holding our annual meeting for this year. So this does happen where you don't get a quorum. And what typically happens when you don't get a quorum for your annual meeting is whoever the board members are at that time you know, that are the board members that were the board members prior to that annual meeting, they just continue on for another year and you try again to have an annual meeting the next year. Occasionally, the board will try again in that same year. So let's say you were supposed to have your annual meeting in March. You try again, maybe in May to see if you can get a quorum. Sometimes that happens. Uh, but if you ultimately don't get a quorum in a year for your annual meeting, those board members stay on through until the next annual meeting that you get a quorum at. So they can continue to do business because they're elected until their term is up. Their term isn't up until their replacement is, is elected. I don't know they're appointing two new board members. I don't know if that's because the two existing board members that were their seats that were up for election, they don't want to be on anymore and they quit. Typically, you can appoint replacement board members. The existing board members can replace replacement board members for those who resign or quit or move or whatever. So based on what you're telling me, I'm not seeing any red flags. I mean, this does happen from time to time. Okay, question number 53. What is the latest on HOAs who have bulk TV services? And for example, want to add internet service through a different company as far as factors involving the FCC and every unit needing to participate and pay for it, if you know. To add internet services for a reduced rate on both TV and internet, do we need to have to take a vote by the membership? And what kind of percentage when the original agreements when communities are built involve the lines going to all units or condos as being proprietary, the company we are considering has drastically reduced rates with their new authors for bulk services. Okay, so bulk services is something that we saw a lot of in like the 80s where it's written in the CCNRs that the association provides different services 
to the community through a bulk provider. Um, it could have been maybe telephone or internet or something that came out more towards the late 90s. So how what do we do if you're looking at this for your association? So first, I would want to know, it looks like you're a board member. I would want to know, what does the current bulk services agreement look like? Can we get out of it? Can we terminate it? Is it still in effect? Before you go looking at putting in another place, you know, another bulk service provider in place, because I see a lot of disagreements with these bulk services, even with like trash collection, where we decide we want to go with a different company and then, you know, you haven't properly terminated the first company. So I know your association, I've worked with you in the past. First thing I would do is reach out to your attorney, me, and I would take a look at that bulk services agreement that you have in place and see how we can get out of it. And then then start looking at the new company, um, if we can get out of the other one. And I don't, I'd have to look at your documents as to whether you need to do a vote to change the company. I doubt it. Usually the board does that. Or if you're bringing in bulk services for the first time, that may require a vote because you're going to be passing that charge along to the owners. So this is something you definitely need legal counsel to be involved in. Okay, next question. What are the process steps to remove board members? Okay, so we had a question on this already and we can share with you there's two... There's a statute in the Condominium Act and a statute in the Planned Communities Act that talks about removal of a board member from office. We also have a cheat sheet on this. It's our top 10 cheat sheet. Um, and we've already shared all these with you. There's a whole process under state law. It trumps your documents. So you want to look at the, the statutes, the two statutes I mentioned, and then our cheat sheet to show you the process. Okay, question number 55. Our election was last week, but our annual meeting is in July. We had two vacancies on a five-member board and need the ones that were elected right away. They are supposed to take office at the annual meeting. Can the remainders of the board vote to have the recently elected board members take office at the main meeting next week? Due to ill health, one of the remaining board members is not always able to attend the meetings. We really need the new members to take office. Okay, so the way to do this is... Sounds like you have a five-member board, you had two vacancies, right, that were up for election. So you have two board members that are kind of what I'm going to call lame ducks, right? Get them to resign in writing if they're willing to, and then appoint the two people that were just elected for the next two months to serve as the board members and make a notation that it, you know, we're just appointing them in advance and then their term will start July 1. That's the way to do it. If there's nobody in those two vacancies, like let's just say they were like vacant to begin with, then you could just go ahead and appoint them, the two people that were elected for the two months until the July 1 term starts. Okay, next question from a former board member who I have enjoyed working with over the years. I'm glad to see you coming back asking questions as a homeowner. Question 56, without infringing on any individual privacy rights, would it be appropriate or acceptable to share information related to delinquencies with the community as part of the board's financial report once each six-month period? So I think that's fine. I think what the way to do it would be maybe just to say we have a total dollar amount in delinquencies. You could do that, and that could be done every month. Or you could redact a list. By redact, I mean you could take the names and the unit identifiers off of it and just have a list of, okay, we've got 10 owners that are delinquent, no unit or name identifiers on it, and here's how much is owed by each person. I think that's totally fine. You also could request the list of delinquencies, um, and just they, but know that they will redact the names. 
Okay, question number 57, and we have 68 questions. We're getting close to the end. When ballots are submitted, if an accepted method is not listed, I understand no others are valid. Does this apply to the candidate application process as well for being put onto a ballot, i.e. phone-in requests to be added on a ballot but did not complete the candidate application? What ARS statute would this fall under? Okay, so I guess I'm kind of a little confused on this question. So you're saying ballots are submitted. There's no acceptable method, I'm assuming, for you to vote. Um, I understand no others are valid. I'm not sure I really get that question. Okay, does this apply to the candidate application process as well as we're being put on the ballot? Okay, so it just depends. So if your candidate application process is very particular and it says, like, if you want to run for the board, you have to tell us in writing by X date and that's the only way you can get added to the board. Your board can enforce that. I mean, if somebody doesn't have access to send a letter or whatever, they're traveling or something and they just do a phone-in request and they do it by the time, you know, it's really up to your board whether or not you're going to accept it. Um, if they don't complete the candidate application, that's a little bit of a problem because probably you know, you're asking them for their name, their address, you know, what their background is, why they want to be on the board. There's no ARS statute that this falls under. So this is just going to be a board policy thing. I mean, I think it's best if you're going to do a whole formal candidate application process that you make everybody follow it. So if you don't have anybody to run though, and your only option is a phone-in request, well, then you may need to make an exception and maybe, um, have them answer the phone, answer on the phone, the candidate application questions, and then just submit it for them. But that would be unusual. That's only if you're desperate for board members, obviously. Try to get them to follow the written procedure. And there's no law that this is going to apply it. No Arizona law that says you have to do it this way. Okay, question 58. We want to do our next election for the board of directors correctly. When a unit owner is a C corporation, who is eligible to vote? When a unit owner is a trust, who is eligible to vote? When a unit owner is an LLC, who's eligible to vote? Can an eligible voter designate a personal representative to vote on their behalf? Is a provision in our bylaws which limits board membership to residents, resident unit owners valid? Okay, there's a lot of questions here. And remember, it's only one question for First Friday. So we want to be real careful on that when we're vetting these questions in the future. Okay, so I'll answer all of them. So when you have a C-Corp, a trust, or an LLC, we need to see the backup paperwork to see who is associated with these different entities. So typically in a C-Corporation, it's going to be anybody who's on the board. With an LLC, it's going to be a manager, possibly even a member will be allowed to vote. Um, With the trust, typically we see in a trust that Either the paperwork is provided showing who has the authority to vote on behalf of the trust or the trust is in the name of the person. So it's obvious. That's okay. He living trust. That's okay. He's voting. You know, it's obvious that that's the correct person. Um, But we can always ask for paperwork to make sure that the correct person is voting. Um, We also can check with the Corporation Commission in Arizona and all that's online if you Google. Um, and you can look at the paperwork that's listed on the Corporation Commission as to who is, um, you know, a manager member in an LLC or who's a board member in a C corporation. If you have a question on a ballot, just ask them when it comes in. Say, hey, can you provide us with evidence that you're authorized to vote on this? If it comes in the night of the meeting, we always bring our laptop to the annual meeting because we're looking up things like this if there's a question. 
If you're unsure as to whether or not they're able to vote or not at the annual meeting, you can count it and make a notation in the upper right-hand corner. Hey, we're not sure if this is a valid ballot. We need to do some further investigation or maybe don't count it, put it off to the side. Usually one vote isn't going to make or break the election results. So that's sometimes how we do it. Then we go back and check after the fact and then the next morning or whatever. Is a provision in our bylaws which limits board membership to resident unit owners valid? No. There is a state law that says that it's in the Condo Act and the Planned Communities Act. It's kind of buried in a weird part. It's in the section that talks about rentals, but you cannot, under the law, say that in order to be on the board, you have to reside on the property. Even if your bylaws say that, that's invalid. What state law says is that you can't do that. Okay, question 59. Is prohibiting walking pets in the common area unreasonable? Probably. I mean, I have a dog, I love my dog, Bailey. And where would I walk her if I couldn't walk her in the common areas? And so I guess I'd want to know more about what's going on in your association. Is Do you not want people walking their 300-pound dog through the condominium lobby? Okay, that could be reasonable. Um, I don't want to walk into a trap door on this question, but can we say that you can't walk dogs around You know, your condo complex? That's probably unreasonable. But there might be areas that the dogs aren't allowed to go. Um, and if it's posted or whatever, that could be reasonable. So I need more facts on this to give you a good answer. Okay, the next question, 60. Is a plat a declaration contract and enforceable? So a plat is different from the declaration. Um, and we have a cheat sheet that I think would be helpful for you to understand what the different documents are for association. It's called What is an Association? And it's on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. So a plat is something that is uh, filed with the city um, in which the association is built as part of the development process. And basically it just outlines the configuration of the community on a map. So it shows where the units are or lots are and where the common areas are and if there are any easements, et cetera. The declaration is, is different. That is the use restriction that's recorded after the plat typically. And um, the plat is recorded as well after the city approves it. Um, but the declaration is like the use restrictions for the property. So take a look at our cheat sheet on this and it'll give you a more detailed description. Okay, question 61. We often have committee meetings where we post that three or more board members will be present. Okay, this is like turning into a very regular question. We've got to write a blog on this. So we already answered this. So if you have a committee that consists of a majority or a quorum of board members, it's considered a board meeting if all of you are meeting discussing committee business that pertains to your association. It has to be noticed as an open board meeting. Okay, next question. Number 62, can the board make a rule to charge members to park their vehicles around the clubhouse? Now, I don't know this one. You're, it's an indication that you are an RV resort. So I don't know if you are technically condominium or a planned community because it says that in your name that you're an RV resort. So I want to be mindful. There are different rules if you aren't a planned community or condominium. Um, and so I want to be mindful just to mention that. So if you are considered a planned community or condo, I'm not sure that you are. Can the board make a rule to charge somebody for something? Um, typically, that's going to need to be something that's in the CCNRs. So I don't think that's a rule thing that you can charge for that. 
Um, so the board wouldn't have the authority just to say, oh, you have to pay to use this amenity. It would have to be something that would be in the CCNRs. You know, now there are exceptions to that. Like, let's say that your community has like a card, an access card. You could charge the owners for an access card so that they can have access to the gym or the pool or the tennis court or whatever. That's a little bit different. But this like fee to park your vehicles around the common area where in a planned community, you probably already have an easement to be on the common areas. I'm not sure that that's going to work. Okay, next question from a board member. We have a five-member board. I need to have a working session with only three board members to meet with Cox technical staff to explore a major technological investment for our community. How can I make this happen without the intrusion of many other people in our community who wish to express their opinions and would interfere with this briefing of the three board members who need to educate themselves? Really, if you have a majority of the board, which you do here, three out of five, it needs to be an open board meeting. What you could do is just make it two board members. Then you have less than a quorum and you could meet with them without having to make it, you know, an open board meeting. Or another thing that you could do is if you're not making any, if you're not voting on anything, make it a Zoom board meeting, right? Um, And have the three board members there and just mute everybody other than the Cox technical staff and your board, because there wouldn't be any opportunity for the owners to contribute because there's no voting being done. That's another option. Okay, question 64. Our CCNRs state that to lease your property, only the entire residential dwelling unit can be rented. Does this mean that one owner could not rent out separate rooms to separate renters? That is correct. You can't do that. Okay, question 65. The volume of frivolous or extraordinary lawsuits taken out against HOAs seems extraordinary. Is there legislation currently moving forward to address this issue? So no, there isn't. And I honestly don't see this as a legislative issue because people have the right, you know, as an owner to file lawsuits where, where they're going to get in trouble is if there is a frivolous lawsuit that's filed against the association, there's a couple of things that can be done. A, you can do a motion to dismiss right away to have the judge get the lawsuit dismissed because there's no validity to it. B, you can ask to have the owner um, declared what we call a vexatious litigant. And this would be like a, a somebody who repeatedly files frivolous lawsuits against the association. And unfortunately, we have seen that over the years where we may have one person who maybe due to mental illness or something like that, there's a propensity to continue to file these lawsuits. And it really can be a problem because it affects our insurance rates. It costs money for the association, et cetera. So best thing to do is have your attorney file a motion to dismiss to get the lawsuit ejected. Um, have this person designated as a vexatious litigant by the court and your attorney will do that as part of the litigation. So then if they try to file a new lawsuit against the association again, there'll be a history that they're a vexatious litigant and the court will shut them down a lot faster. And there'll be protocols in place that you can't file a certain way. I mean, we've seen examples in the past of owners being deemed vexatious litigant. And the judge actually says to the owner, you no longer can file anything electronically in this case. And if they file a new lawsuit, the first thing that the association lawyer is going to do is let the judge know, hey, this person was vexatious litigant against us in the lawsuit that this person filed 
two months ago that was dismissed and the judges, they keep track of this and they will take that notation and the case likely will be dismissed a lot faster. Question number 66. So we're down to our last three questions, two hours and 10 minutes in. This is a record. Yesterday was my birthday. I'm glad I didn't go out hard last night. I was at a lacrosse game. So I was in bed early last night. I should have been ready for today. Okay, question 66. We are thinking of converting the community property from grass into an arid landscape. What do we have to do as far as notifying owners? Um, this is a great question. And this actually would be a great question for you know our firm to be writing about more in the future because the state of Arizona is implementing things that are making it mandatory for associations to use less water. And there's many different phases that the um, Department of Water Resources is putting into place if you have a lot of green turf. Okay, so this is a thing of the future. So if you're an association that's thinking about converting from grass to an arid landscape, first look at your documents. Is this something that we may have to get membership approval on? Like, um, are we converting the use of a certain area? Are we going to have to have a special assessment to fund this expense? Another thing to be thinking about is, does our city or town or municipality offer any sort of a grant for this that might help us pay for this change? And the time to get grants is in June or in July when the new fiscal year starts for each you know, city, town or municipality. They've got grant money that's available then. So keep that in your back pocket. You might be able to take advantage of that grant money then. Now it's May, you know, that money's probably already been accounted for. Okay, so what do we have to do as far as notifying homeowners? So maybe you're telling me we don't have anything in our CCNRs that's, you know, have any restrictions that we have to get a vote of the membership to change this area to this type of landscaping. And we're going to pay for it out of pocket. We already have the money. Even then, I still think you have to tell your homeowners about this and get buy-in from them. Because in the past, we've seen a lot of anxiety from owners and unrest and upset when they think they're losing their grass. Um, and I mean, I love grass. Don't get me wrong. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I green grass is important to me. But green grass is very expensive to maintain. And it also is something that is going by the wayside with all the water problems we're seeing and the shortage of water that we're seeing in Arizona. So my best advice to you would be check your documents. Number one, get advice from your legal counsel as to do I have any legal requirements to notify the owners? Even if you don't have any legal requirements or you don't need to have a vote, you need to have a PR campaign to roll this out. You need to show them you know, what you're doing, why you're doing it, how it looks before, how it's going to look after. A great way to do this, and we've seen um, associations do this, is bring in the company that's going to do the work and have them do a PowerPoint, show everybody what it's going to look like. Um, if it's just a small area, it may not be a big production that you have to do this, but I still would communicate with your owners because people do get fired up about this topic. Okay, we're down to our last two questions from a former board member. When you believe a board member is benefiting from work being done to common property like condos or misappropriating funds, where or who do we file a formal complaint? Okay, well, well, good question. First, take a look at our cheat sheet that we have on tips for, for preventing theft and fraud of association funds. Because we give you the warning signs in that cheat sheet, these are the things to watch out for to make sure that you don't um, have any sort of fraud in your community. 
before you're going to go saying, hey, I think somebody's misappropriating funds or stealing money or there's fraud going on in our community, take a look at that cheat sheet because we've been doing this for, I've been an attorney in this area since 1996. And I've seen cases with theft and fraud of association funds. And I've put a lot of thought into this cheat sheet. And I've used all my institutional knowledge for the, the many years that I've been practicing. These are the warning signs. So look at that cheat sheet because I've updated over the years. It's got some great info in there on that. Okay, so let's say you look at the cheat sheet and you're like, yep, this is what's going on here. Okay, so how do we file a formal complaint? Well, I think that you should document your concerns in writing to the board. Be careful what you say because you don't want to defame somebody, right? As a homeowner and you want to be making truthful statements. So I have concerns regarding the following. And I please meet with the board to discuss this. Um, if they refuse and shut you down and you think you have Apple evidence, you may want to write a letter to the association's attorney saying, I have concerns. As the legal counsel for the association, I'm asking you to please look into this. Trust me, when we get a letter like that, we look into it. We send it to the board. We ask for a meeting. If all of that is failing and nobody is getting back to you and you really do think that there are valid concerns, you know, you may want to go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate. And if you Google Arizona Department of Real Estate and HOAs or Arizona Department of Real Estate and condos, and um, you'll see the link you write to the page that tells you how you can file a complaint, what type of complaints that they hear. That's one option. You can also file a lawsuit in Superior Court. That's another option. You can move. If you're worried about this and you don't want to be a part of this, you can move. You can run for the board yourself. You could try to get the board member review removed from office. We talked about that earlier in the presentation today. So you have a lot of options as you are navigating you know, the situation. And one thing I just want to mention is after our, our last First Fridays, I think somebody, the first time, and I don't know how many years I've been doing this, I've been doing this a long time, at least a decade, probably more of these First Fridays, is, you know, somebody came to me after we taught the First Fridays and sent an email saying, hey, we feel you didn't give us a full enough answer to your response, you know, in the presentation today. And um, I did go back and listen to it because I want to do a good job when I'm doing these these classes. But I do want to make it clear, like, I am not your attorney. I'm just here offering a public service, right? And I have basically like one or two minutes to answer the questions. I don't have your documents. And I'm trying to give you a quick answer to point you in the right direction. So sometimes if I can't be as detailed as I would be, if I were writing a real formal opinion letter for you as my client, please know that um, I'm doing the best that I can here. Um, and I always want to make the disclaimer too, that, you know, this isn't like a lawyer contractual relationship, this little free Friday thing. This is just a public service where I'm anonymously answering questions about our industry. Um, and I'm doing the best I can based upon the information that's provided. Um, and I want you to know I'm doing this all from my head. <laughs> I've been doing this since 1996. Um, I don't even have time to look up the answers because I come in here live. I see the questions and I so just wanted to mention that. Okay, our last question for this morning. We are two hours and 18 minutes in. I'm glad I had a piece of birthday cake for breakfast because that gave me all of the energy I need today to get through these. Okay, what Arizona laws apply to a nonprofit corporation? Owners own their own trailers, but have a proprietary lease to their space. Okay, this doesn't sound like an HOA or plan community or condo question. 
Um, it's interesting. We've been kind of getting some art. We got one other RV question today. So there are specific laws that are going to apply to like an RV type situation in Arizona. There's very specific laws. And then there's also the Nonprofit Corporation Act. If your um, RV park is set up as an, a nonprofit corporation, you want to look at the Nonprofit Corporation Act. You can just go to Title 10, Google Title 10 Arizona Revised Statutes, and you'll be able to see all the laws that apply to planned communities, excuse me, to all the laws that apply to nonprofit corporations. You also can look at, um, go to Arizona Revised Statutes and type in what are the laws that apply to um, recreational vehicles, RV parks, and trailer parks in Arizona, and they'll direct you to those laws. Okay, we made it. We are two hours and 19 minutes in. We answered 68 questions. I just want to confirm with my staff that one question that I mixed up, I put it in at the end. So we answered all 68 today. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We had over 95 attendees live on Zoom and we had 16 viewers on Facebook. Um, that is a record to note. Great job, everybody, for caring so much about your community and wanting to be here to hear the answer to your questions regarding the legalities of your HOA or condo. We have a great class coming up in our 2023 Virtual HOA Academy, which is in partnership with a number of different cities, towns, and municipalities in um, the Valley and Phoenix area. It's going to be our fifth class, our May class, um, and we're going to be talking about long-term planning for HOAs and condos. So we're going to cover everything about like deferred maintenance, how do the finances of your association, like, you know, what's a one-year, five-year, 10-year plan? We're going to be talking about reserves. What are reserves um, for an association? What's a reserve study? How do we plan for our reserves? How do we know what, you know, the useful life is of our amenities in the association? Um, and so we're going to talk about just the most common issues that are for looking to the future of our association. So, what are we going to get done this year and what needs to be done this year in terms of maintaining common areas? And, you know, what's our plan for the future for our association, which is really important because sometimes as a board, we get stuck in um, disputes between neighbors, people not picking up their dog poo, people that are upset about the grass not being green enough or the solar light not working. And we lose sight of the fact that, hey, we have to have a big picture too for our association and we need to do planning. Um, and so this is our class that we're going to give you the tools that you need to do planning for your condominium or your, or your HOA going forward. And it's going to be a great class. And it's, I think it's the first time we've taught this particular class. So this is going to be one you don't want to miss. So don't forget, you're going to be tuning in for that on Tuesday, May 16th from 11 to 12. We also have a free Q&A at the end of each class that we teach. So you could submit one question at the end of each class. And we look forward to seeing you there. Our next virtual First Friday event is going to be Friday, June 2nd. So mark that on your calendar. Thanks so much for being here today. And I hope everybody has a great month of May. Happy Mother's Day to any mothers that are joining me here today. And um, happy Cinco de Mayo. So everybody take care. Look forward to seeing you again later this month. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 